I'd like you to take a few moments with me right now to contemplate a few comforting words from the Scripture. Let God breathe them into you. From the Psalms, we read this, The Lord is a shelter for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you, for you, O Lord, have never abandoned anyone who searches for you. Psalm 18 says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my Savior. My God is my rock, in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the strength of my salvation, and my stronghold. And then from Psalm 23, verse 4, Even when I walk through the dark valley of death, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Psalm 62, he alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will never be shaken. And finally, God is our refuge and strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. So we will not fear even if earthquakes come and the mountains crumble into the sea. Did you catch that last psalm? So we will not fear even if if. Those are two very difficult words. And we may have physically read the promises. We intellectually know of his presence. We sincerely believe in his power. Yet you know as well as I do that there are times when the words, even if, seem to sink in an ocean of fear, swamped by moments of doubt. And sometimes it's difficult for us to see past the ink of these scriptures and to be settled by their truth. You know, life is full of storms. You know it, and I know it. Some of us seem to have been hit with more than our share. Inevitably, though, every one of us experiences them. But as we discovered last time we were together, there is no disappointment, no disillusionment, no discouragement, no disablement that is so severe that it's beyond Christ's control or concern. Absolutely none. The real crux of the issue in your life right now, in this moment, is your relationship with Jesus. That is our point of origin today. So my question to you this morning is, how is your relationship with Jesus? Sadly, for many of us, we don't think seriously about that until our backs are pressed up against the wall and we're facing the storm of our lives. Author J. Allen Peterson drills that truth home with a personal experience that I'm sure he will never forget. He says, what do you think would be your last thought, your last unscheduled thought and word if you knew that in a minute or two your life was over? Let's put this in context. Every nook and cranny of the big 747 was crowded. It took off in the middle of the night in Brazil, where I'd been speaking, the writer says. As it moved into the night, I began to doze. Well, I don't know how long I slept, but I was starting to wake when I heard a strong voice announcing, we have a very serious emergency. Three engines had gone because of fuel contamination, and the other engine would go at any second. The steward said it's in English, now you must do exactly as we tell you. Don't anyone think of doing anything we do not suggest. Your life depends on us. 
We are trained for your safety, so you must do exactly as we tell you. And then he rattled off in Portuguese the same thing. Everybody looked soberly at one another, and the steward said, now pull down the curtains. In a few minutes, we're going to turn off all the lights. And my thought exclaimed, Lord. And then the plane veered and banked, and as the crew tried to get it back to the airport, the steward ran up and down the aisle and barked out orders. Now take that card out of the seat pocket in front of you, and I want you to look at this diagram. You know, he says, I've flown millions of miles all over the world, and here I thought I had that card memorized. But I panicked because I couldn't find the crazy card. Everybody looked stunned as we felt the plane plunging downward. And finally, the steward said, now tighten the seatbelts as tight as you can and pull up your legs and bury your head into your lap. Well, we couldn't look out to see where we were, whether we were high or whether we were low. But I peeked around, and the Portuguese were crossing themselves. And I thought, this is serious. This is it. I can't believe this. I didn't know this was going to happen tonight. I guess this is it. And I had this crazy sensation. Then the steward's voice broke into my consciousness, barking out in this machine gun fashion, prepare for impact. And frankly, I wasn't thinking at that point about the photocopier. I wasn't worried about the oil in my car. At times like that, involuntarily, from deep inside of us, something comes out that's never structured, planned, or rehearsed. And all I could do was pray. Everybody started to pray. I found myself praying in a way I never thought of doing. As I buried my head in my lap and pulled my knees up, as I was convinced it was over, I said, Oh God, thank you. Thank you for the incredible privilege of knowing you. Life has been wonderful. And as the plane was going down, my last thought, my last cry was, Oh God, my wife and my children. Now I should say for the sake of, of you guys that are hearing this, that I survived. As I wandered about in the middle of the night in the airport with a knot in my stomach and cotton in my mouth, I couldn't speak and I ached all over. And I thought, what did I do? What did I say? What were my last thoughts? Why did I think that, I wondered. And what was the bottom line in all of it? Here's the bottom line, he says. Relationship. Relationship. Relationship with your spouse. Relationship with your children, with your best friend. But ultimately, and finally, it boils down to your relationship to the Savior. Peterson continues, when I saw my wife at the airport, I looked at her and rushed to hold her hand. I just looked at her in a moment and threw my arms around her and I said, oh, I appreciate you. And then with tears in my eyes, I looked at her again and said, I appreciate you so much. I didn't know if I'd ever see you again. Oh, I appreciate you. So I ask you again, how is your relationship with Jesus? Do you appreciate him? Strangely enough, great faith sometimes begins with a great seed of fear. 
It's probably one of the greatest paradoxes of our existence. If there's any significant evidence for that statement, it has got to be right here in today's text. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Matthew chapter 14 and verses 28 to 33. Now, if you remember last time we were together, we find out that the disciples were in a boat and, they, and Jesus had sent them away. They were on a mountain and um, Jesus sent them away. And they're straining at the oars for a long, long time, and it's really, really late at night. It's like 3 o'clock in the morning. And Jesus isn't with them. Jesus was on the mountain, and then he came to them walking on the sea. And last time we were together, I suggested to you that God often uses the storms in our lives to draw us to faith. Let me ask you, is God drawing you right now during this coronavirus pandemic to faith? God's ultimate intent is not to allow the upheavals of life to scare you to death, but rather to call you to life, a life secure in him. Matthew 14 and verses 22 to 33 vividly records how Peter and the other disciples learned that lesson, the lesson that our greatest fears can be relieved by putting our trust in the person of Christ. Now, there are a handful of things about Jesus that emerged from this passage, at least five of them that I see, which should encourage us in the face of our own fear. Now, last week we looked at three. Let me just remind you what we unpacked last week. Number one, we found out that in times of separation, his, Jesus' divine position can relieve us of our disappointment. Look at verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. The Bible says that there is never a time when Christ is not praying for us or sensitive to our needs, no matter what the circumstances may indicate. The second thing we saw last time was that in times of storms, his divine protection can relieve our disillusionment. That's in verses 24 and 25. Let me read them. But the boat was already a long distance from the land battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, because of his overwhelming love for us, there is never a time when we're out of his sight. Never. He sees us, and he seeks to strengthen us, and sometimes he waits, and he stretches us by his timing. That leads us to the third thing we unpacked last week, that in times of stress, his divine presence can relieve our discouragement. Verse 26, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, it is I do not be afraid. His promise is true. But tragically, we don't always see him or recognize him in the midst of our storms. Like the disciples, we're often surprised by the way that he comes to us. Sometimes we're so focused on the problems of life that we miss his presence with us altogether. But you know what? He's there. He's here right now. 
If you look closely enough, you'll see him. And his voice is characteristically comforting. He says to us, take courage. It is I. Literally, that's I am. Do not be afraid. Take courage. I am. Do not be afraid. I view this as kind of a New Testament version of Jeremiah 29, 11, and 13. You remember those verses? For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. Well, those were words to Israel from God in the Old Testament, but these words are to the New Testament believers, specifically these disciples. And there are also times, however, when after hearing Jesus' voice, we begin moving toward him with great confidence, but about halfway there, we again become swamped by doubts. We doubt our ability to follow through. We shrink away at the magnitude of the trial that we're facing. We cower at the big picture and the doubt that, we, the doubt that we have enough faith to get us to the other side of this storm. We may even doubt Christ's ability to get us through it. You know, if this COVID-19 pandemic stretches into months of separation and isolation from each other, we may find ourselves in that very place of doubts. What then? It's then that we're going to need to realize the fourth thing that emerges from this text, that in times of doubt, his divine provision can relieve our disablement. Look at verse 28. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you have little faith. Why did you doubt well, we're not only soothed by Jesus' voice when we finally recognize it, but here we find that we're strengthened by his word. That's in verses 28 and 29. Peter said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. Now, when Peter heard Jesus' voice, his fear subsided and his faith kicked in. And he makes what I consider to be one of the greatest requests in all of the New Testament. Lord, if it's you, command me, tell me to come to you on the water. Now, at first glance, when you read this, as many people do, and consider it a question laced with doubt, placing all the emphasis on the word if, as if Peter was backhandedly asking for proof that it really was Jesus, there are two significant reasons why I don't think Peter was attempting to get proof from Jesus. The first reason is practical. Let me ask you this. Why in the world would anyone risk his life by making such an absurd request? If Peter was unsure of whether or not it really was Jesus, 
I have a hard time believing that he would plunge himself overboard in the midst of a raging sea just to satisfy his curiosity and prove that it really was Jesus. And the second reason is grammatical. The word if in this context in the scripture is, is used not as a statement of doubt, but rather of certainty. It's called a first-class condition. In other words, the statement can be translated this way in the original language. Lord, since it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Well, that makes a whole world of difference, doesn't it? Actually, there isn't even a hint of doubt in Peter's crazy request. The doubt comes later in Peter's shaky response. I believe Peter, one of Christ's closest disciples, simply wanted to be where Jesus was. Let that sink into your mind for a minute. Peter wanted to be where Jesus was, the place of safety. Because I think that Peter knew that it was safer out on the water with Jesus than in a sinking ship without him. Now, I don't think that Peter was being arrogant. He wasn't demanding proof. I think Peter was scared to death. And he saw Jesus standing securely in the middle of this raging storm, and he was about to die in the boat being swamped by the waves. Let me ask you a question. Where would you rather be if it were you? Maybe we should cut Peter a little slack here. We got to give him a little credit. After all, no experienced fisherman such as Peter jumps out of a boat in the midst of a hurricane to show off or to prove a point. That's not faith. That's suicide. And it's foolishness. Peter loved Christ. And I believe he wanted to be where Jesus was because he believed in Jesus. He knew there was safety by his side. I remember years ago, one of my sons, my son Aaron, who many of you know, he was eight years old, and uh, my family and I took a trip with my mom and dad to Toronto. And during that trip, we, uh, my father, myself, and my son Aaron, and my son Josh, went up in the CN Tower. At that time, it was the highest freestanding structure in the world. Well, in this elevator had a glass front and a glass bottom. So you didn't know that when you stepped into the elevator. But as soon as they started to go up, everything opened up. And when that sky just opened up like that, and we went to the top of that tower, Aaron turned around, he grabbed my leg, and he buried his head in my lap. Something told him at that point in time that the safest place to be standing in the midst of his crazy fear was next to his father. Now, I doubt if I could have protected him if anything went wrong in that thing. But the fact is, is that he felt safe when he was next to his father. Something told Peter the same exact thing. Friends, let me say this with all the sincerity that I can muster, that the safest place for you to be when things are blowing up in your life is right next to Jesus. And Peter knew that. But he also knew he wasn't going to get there without Christ's permission. 
Let me say this, and don't misapply it, that nothing can happen in your life unless the word of permission comes from Christ. Nothing can happen in your life unless the word of permission comes from Christ. He's Lord. He's on the throne. He's sovereign. It's at his word alone that we are allowed to accomplish things and to grow closer to him, to be strengthened in the faith and to, be, to grow in the faith. Peter was smart enough to know that and he was also bold enough to ask for it. Let me ask you, are you? Are you smart enough to know that? Are you bold enough to ask for it? Do you know what will stop the impossible from being accomplished in our lives, in our churches, in our homes, and in the ministry? I'll tell you what will stop it when we doubt that he will do what we ask him to do. When we don't even dare to ask him and when we ask with the wrong motives. There's scripture for that, you know. James chapter one, verses five to eight. If you need wisdom, if you want to know what God wants you to do, ask him, James writes, and he will gladly tell you. He will not resent your asking, but when you ask him, be sure that you really expect him to answer. For a doubtful mind is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. People like that should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. They can't make up their minds. They waver back and forth in everything they do. I have to wonder if James, as the leader of the Jerusalem church and being so intimately acquainted with Peter, was thinking about this very incident in Matthew 14 when under the direction of the Holy Spirit, he wrote those words. James chapter 4, verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And in John chapter 14 and verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, meaning according to his will, I will do it. Now rest assured that if we ask for anything that will bring us closer to Jesus, I guarantee you he will do it. Verse 29 here in our text says, and Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and came toward Jesus. I would really like to know what Peter was thinking when he took that first step. No one had ever seen this before. No one had ever heard of it, at least not as recorded in Scripture. Moses took the Israelites through the middle of the sea as it parted on both sides, but no one had ever walked on top of the water. Now Jesus and Peter were out there in the middle of this raging storm. Can you imagine what it must have been like for the other disciples to be sitting in the boat witnessing all of this? Actually, we can't. And I'll tell you why. Because it seems too much like fantasy to us. You know, we've been, we, we're spoiled. We become so enamored with the big screen special effects and computer-generated imagery, CGI, 
that anything seems possible to us when we sit down and watch it on TV. And in a sense, it has desensitized us to the miraculous and the powerful acts of God that may occur all around us and we don't notice. Over the years I, that I've been a Christian, I've, I've seen numerous people in the middle of the worst storms of their lives step out of a sinking boat of self-righteousness and human effort and into the sea of God's grace, they know they can't make it on their own, so they cry out for help in their deepest hour of need. And you know what Jesus does? Jesus says, come. And they come. I've watched in awestruck amazement as they're strengthened, sustained by his word, not necessarily by a change in their circumstances, only by his word, and maybe you've witnessed that happening in people's lives too, and yet often we aren't even wowed by that. Notice that Peter walked on the stormy water. That's important. God doesn't always calm the sea before us when he calls us to come next to him, but he does promise to get us through the storm if we keep our focus on him. And I love the way Isaiah Preach that same truth. In Isaiah chapter 43, beginning in verse 2, when you go through deep waters in great trouble, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's creator and king. I am the Lord who opens a way through the waters, making a path, a dry path, through the sea. You see, Peter was doing all right until he took his eyes off Christ. And the same thing happens to us, doesn't it? We start out trusting in Jesus, steady as she goes, doing the impossible, walking through the storm that's in our life, but then something happens. A monster called doubt distracts us and down, down, down we go, plunging for bottom. And that's when we need to know that we're not only strengthened by his word, but when we falter and begin to sink, when we reach the end of our strength and call out to him in faith, we're also supported by his hand. Look at verse 30. But seeing the wind, he, meaning Peter, became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? As soon as Peter took his eyes and his ears off Christ and turned toward his situation, he panicked. I guess that's a little relevant to us, isn't it? So in other words, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and don't panic. And we do the same thing. Faith, said one writer, sometimes begins by stuffing your ears full of cotton. And I think that's true. We're enamored with so much information in the last few weeks with this, with this COVID-19 virus pandemic. I mean, it's just impossible to keep up with all the information that is filling our ears and our eyes and our minds. But you know what we really need to focus on? 
what Jesus is telling us in this. Now, there are times when we are amazingly focused, no question. Our faith propels us forward through the most difficult of times, even this time, and through the death of a loved one, possibly, the lapse of faith of a friend, or through the trauma of a personal setback. We are as surprised as anyone else at the stability with which we can handle it. Spiritually, we seem like we can walk on water. For a season of uncharacteristic faith, we hang in there, we hang tough. We stand on his word. But then, there are also times when the fog gets heavy and we're blistered by the wind. And instead of staying fixed on the beacon, we begin to look around at our precarious surroundings. And we, like Peter, find ourselves in a brand new place. A scary, scary place. Now, I'm sure Peter had battled storms before as a fisherman, an experienced fisherman, but always he battled them from inside the boat. Now, he found himself in very strange surroundings. He was outside the boat, and he was on the sea. There, he was completely disabled. He didn't know what he was doing there, and he was totally and humanly disoriented. He had only one hope at that point, and it was Jesus. Verse 30 again. Lord, he said, after he saw the wind and, and the waves, and he, he began to sink, he said, Lord, save me. And you know what? God wants every single one of us to come to that place. Over and over and over again, he drives home that point that without him, we can do nothing. Every new storm that you and I encounter can bring us closer to him if we call out to him. I mean, this pandemic and, this, and the fallout that may result from it is no different Listen, if you're a child of God, the storm-tossed seasons of your life can build a stronger faith in your soul. Let me say that again. If you're a child of God, the storm-tossed seasons of your life can build a stronger faith in your soul. James chapter 1. Verses 3 and 4, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. If your life is calm and you're not yet convinced that you need Jesus, this storm should convince you. Let me ask you, Unless you were alive in 1918 during the influenza pandemic and survived it, have you ever experienced a global uproar such as this in your lifetime? I haven't. But there are worse things coming according to the scripture. It's the same thing then as now. Jesus will be our only hope. He will be anyone's only hope. And as Paul preached so often, we need to become aware of two important facts. Number one, we are incurable sinners. And number two, we need an incredible Savior. And as Peter so quickly learned here, we need to be aware of something else. That in the roughest storms of our life, when we are going down, Jesus is reaching out. 
It's right then when our heads are barely above water, as Max Lucado says, quote, we have to make a decision. Do we save face and drown in pride? Or do we scream for help and take God's hand? Let me give you a handful of priceless counsel. Scream for help with all you've got and hang on to Jesus for all you're worth. And by the way, do you know how much you're worth to God? You were worth a trip to death row for him. This is how much God loved the world, says John 3.16, that he gave his only son, his one and only son, and this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, everyone, anyone can have a whole and lasting life, eternal life. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, says pretty much the same thing, that God has shown us how much he loves us because it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. Listen, whatever your situation, whatever your storm, pray as simply as you know how, Lord, save me. That's all it takes, a simple prayer. Lord, save me. Rescue me. I can't make it without you. Because in the midst of your greatest turmoil, he's not only just within your sight, but you're well within his reach. Just over 30 years ago, Denise and I were invited some friends to come to something called the Living Nativity out here in Fayette out in the deep woods. We didn't know what that was all about. And on our way home, the roads were very, very slushy. And as we were talking about the events of the night, we rounded the corner by Camp Winnebago and suddenly the car went out of control and we fishtailed and began to spin into the other lane. And I lost it in a car before on, on the snow, but this time I was convinced that we, we were just done. We were gonna be killed. And my first reaction was to close my eyes and let go of the wheel because terror seized me. But the next thing I heard was, Jesus, help us. And in that instant, I wondered why I hadn't reacted that way. Immediately following her cry, the car came to rest on the other side of the road on top of a snowbank with the back resting against a tree. And Josh and Aaron, our two oldest boys, who were very, very young at the time, were sitting in the back seat. And thinking I was fooling around, one of them yelled, Daddy, don't do that. And I just sat there for a few minutes and wondered, why had I doubted? I still thank God for hearing Denise's call. We drove away from that incident without a scratch on us or our car. In our time of need, we were supported by his hand. It wasn't our time. Verse 31 says that immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. I have the word immediately circled in my Bible in red because it means without hesitation. Instantly, at Peter's cry, Jesus reached out to save him. That, my friend, is the essence of Christianity. God reaching out to us as we cry out to him. Listen, outside of this coronavirus pandemic, I don't know your storm. 
But I do know one thing. Whatever waves you're battling right now in your life, they have the potential to sink you dead in the water. You need him desperately. We all do. And whatever it is you're struggling with, I just, I plead with you and I urge you to cry out to him. Don't just close your eyes, let go of the wheel and sink. I guarantee that he will save you. And I can say that with authority. It may not be in the way that you expect that he saves you. He may not relieve your outward circumstances, but your soul will always be safe with him. Psalm 145 in verses 18 and 19 says this, The Lord is close to all who call on him, yes, to all who call on him in sincerity. He hears their cries for help and he rescues them. Romans 10, 13 says, For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You know what that's called? That's what the Bible calls faith. Someone once said it this way, quote, Faith is a desperate dive out of the sinking boat of self-effort and a prayer that God will be there to pull us out of the water. And he will be. You can count on it. In the middle of your worst doubt storm, Jesus is there. We're strengthened by his word. We're supported by his hand. And then we're saved by his grace. Verse 31 again. Jesus took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? One writer said, the supreme force in salvation is God's grace. Not our works, not our talents, not our feelings, not our strength. Salvation is God's sudden calming presence during the stormy seas of our lives. We hear his voice and we take the step. And he takes our hand and he saves our neck. That's grace. Totally and completely undeserved. Jesus says, why did you vacillate, Peter? Why did you doubt? And as you sit there hearing this and reading this, he's asking you and me the same exact thing. Why are you sinking in doubt right now? Shall I call out your name? Because I'm sure that there are some of you out there that are sinking in doubt right now. And the wonderful thing about this verse is the fact that Jesus didn't let Peter drown in his doubt. I'm glad Jesus isn't really into the word of faith thing, aren't you? If he were, Peter would be dead right now. Well, he is dead right now, but he would have been dead in two seconds then. Jesus never lets us sink in our doubts ultimately. If we call out to him, he uses them to grow our faith in him. Did you know that the majority of the verses in the New Testament where the word doubt occurs are in reference to believers? Do a study. I challenge you. As believers, we need to discover that doubt, while hazardous, is not the same as unbelief. Jesus literally calls Peter little faith. But may I add that little faith is a whole lot better than no faith. Faith is a gift 
from God, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It's not something that you and I can work up ourselves. We can't name faith and claim faith if we don't have it to begin with. It's a gift of God, and that not of ourselves. There's nothing we can work up. We're saved through faith, but we're saved by grace. Grace relieves our fear. Remember the words to one of the greatest hymns ever written? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed." The man that wrote those words learned that truth just like Peter did, the hard way. John Newton was a hard man who rebelled against authority. He served on the seas from his youth. At 11 years old, he started. But he learned nothing about respect. In his 20s, he became a slave trader. He mocked authority and blasphemed God. In fact, one writer put it like this, quote, he even made jokes about a book that would eventually reshape his life, The Imitation of Christ. He was degrading that book just a few hours before his slave ship encountered a storm that wrecked his boat and rocked his life. John awakened to find his cabin filling with water as a whole side of the ship had caved in. It was a miracle that it didn't go down. And for about nine hours, he and the others struggled against that storm, but it was absolutely useless. And finally, recognizing his helplessness and having no hope in his own ability to save himself, he threw himself on the deck and he cried out these words, If this will not do, then Lord have mercy on us all. He didn't deserve mercy. He didn't deserve to live. But he got it. His ship and his crew survived. And John Newton never forgot that. It's amazing that a man who despised the grace of God wrote its melody into history. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And he went on to preach about this grace for 50 years. And at the end of his life, when people urged him to give up preaching because of his failing eyesight, this is what he exclaimed. He said, what? Shall the old African blasphemer stop while he can yet speak? And that man would not stop preaching. And the writer concludes, what began as a prayer of fear resulted in a lifetime of faith. My memory is almost gone said John Newton. But I remember two things. I am a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. And I ask you this morning, what more need we remember? Verse 32. When they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's Son. That brings us to the final point here in this text that we find that in the grace of salvation, his divine power deserves our praise. They worshiped him. They glorified God, recognized him as Lord, 
Look at it again. Those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying in verse 33, you are certainly God's son. Sometimes it takes a long time to come to that. What will it take for you? Jesus walked right through their storm and he empowered Peter to do the same. He stilled the storm. He saved them all. Only one person could have that kind of power. God himself. And they finally got it. They got it. And they worshipped him. Never before had they done that as a group. Never had they all professed him to be God's son. Not at any of his other signs that they witnessed, not at the other miracle. Even when he had just fed the 5,000, even when he had healed the sick, they didn't catch it. Mark 6.52 says that up to this point, quote, they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened, unquote. But here and now, they finally understood. And maybe it's because this time, they were the ones who were saved. They weren't bystanders this time. This time, it was their lives teetering on the edge. May I suggest to you that as long as you are a bystander, you will never truly be able to worship Christ for who he is. Until you realize that you are the one that's sinking, that you are the one that he's reaching out to. And until you finally cry out to him as Peter did, Lord, save me. And until you are the one that is rescued, your heart will never fully or truly worship him. John Ortberg writes, this is why the story of Peter walking on the water must end in worship. Worship, in a sense, closes the loop of the entire story. Worship consolidates and expresses the disciples' new understanding of who Jesus is. So it always is when somebody gets out of the boat. When human beings get out of the boat, they are never quite the same. Their worship is never quite the same. Their world is never quite the same. Whatever the results, whether they sink or swim, something will have changed. This is true for you. From this point on, for the rest of your life, every time that you walk on the water, each time that you trust God and seek to discern and obey his calling on your life, your God will get bigger and your worship will grow deeper, richer, and stronger. See, Jesus is not finished yet. He's still looking for people who will dare to trust in him. He's still looking for people who will refuse to allow fear to have the final word. He's still looking for people who refuse to be deterred by failure. He is still passing by. And this is your opportunity to answer his call. This is your chance of a lifetime. It is time to do something. Just remember one thing. If you want to walk on water, you have got to get out of the boat. So let's pray together.
Father in heaven, I pray for every single person that is within earshot of this message right now or will be. I pray, Lord Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would make it alive in their hearts and souls and that if there's anybody right now that needs to step out of the boat and, and focus their faith on Jesus and cry out to him, Lord, save me, that you would not allow any obstacle to stop them. I pray, Father, that they would bow their hearts, bow their heads, close their eyes, and pray the simple prayer. Lord Jesus, I am an incurable sinner, and you are an incredible Savior. Come into my life, forgive my sin, save me, Lord, and I will glorify you and follow you all the days of my life with your help. Lord Jesus, I worship you. And together we worship him as well. And for this I pray in Jesus' name, amen.